Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sticky filmmaker. And joining us tonight, he is the director of the 2019 Fright Fest selection and brand new Arrow video release, a Serial Killer's Guide to Life, with Staten Cousins Row. Staten, hello. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. And thank you for taking the time out to do this. And thank you for kind of reintroducing me to your chosen film, Children of the Corn. <laughs> a pleasure. So, yeah, you went from 1984's Children of the Corn, and uh, we kind of cycled through a couple of ideas. What was it about this one that kind of made you settle for it? There's so many amazing and impactful elements in the film that it just it sticks in your brain and, and and there were other things that we went through and somehow some of those elements just elevate to me at least children of the corn to another level perhaps not fully realized i mean who doesn't like the heroes of the film running over a, a fleeing child at the start of a movie <laughs> it's an audacious way to kick off a film yeah, it's a fair shout. Um, we'll dig into the particulars of the actual uh, the plot beats in a minute. Um, that was a first watch for me, literally my first watch of this, as it so often is with the films that yeah. guests pick on this podcast. Yeah, starting, Mitch hasn't seen anything, so this was uh, <laughs> this came as no surprise to me that he hadn't seen it. I see, I see. Kind of feel like my reactions are still forming. <laughs> um, but, we, but we can get into that now stan we do make everyone that comes on the show do one thing and you are no exception we do this for the benefit of anyone that is listening to the show who hasn't seen the film in question so what we're going to do is andy is gonna or has already put 30 seconds on the clock yes mm -hmm. yes i have uh, i'm going to count you in and we're going to ask you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of children of the corn how are you feeling uh not confident but i'm, I'm good <laughs> Listen, that's the spirit. The, the bar is low. I can tell you the bar for other guests is low. So you don't have much to do to kind of come top 10th percentile. I have, I have a five month old and I had about an hour of sleep last night. So let's see. Let's see what happens. Let's see if I even say the movie. I might okay. have to say that. Right. Three, two, one, go. A young couple are driving um, for some reason, I forget why, uh, on, their, on a road trip across America and they go past a field of corn and run over uh, a young child who's fleeing from the, the corn. Um, instead of helping him, they put his dead body in the boot and drive on. Uh, and they come to um, the village just slightly further on, which, weirdly enough, um, all of the adults have been murdered. Time! At it, whoa! 30 seconds. Not now, a long time. I completely overestimated my time period. <laughs> um, it's, 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 um, I've noticed that that is something that often, it's a fate that often befalls writers on the show when they're trying to do it, is I think that they um, get too bogged down in scene setting. You mean basically start describing line for line the scenes like, like I just did? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's the most commonly made mistake, I think. So no one's going to know what the heck happened in this movie that they didn't watch it, but that's fine. It just means that we're going to have to be on it as we go forward here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> basically a cornfield kills everyone. That is ultimately our big bad here, is corn. Not the band. <laughs> that would be something. That would be something. Um, and yeah, it does kind of start as it means to go on, this one. It does open quite fittingly on what appears to be vast amounts of corn yeah, absolutely i think i, I really appreciate it. they didn't try and you know take you in another direction at the start so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no misdirection which i appreciate the church sign makes a fool of me in my assumptions corn drought apparently <laughs> 
I beg to differ. The corn seems hardy. It seems in fine fettle. Plentiful. And it's everywhere. There's a lot of it. Yeah, literally every surface that you could lie corn on has corn on it. Now, what I would say is, what we cut to here, what we go to here, um, speaking to someone, I had like a kind of nodding knowledge of Torrent of the Corn going in. I had a vague idea what it was about. Mm. And I think that I had it pegged in my head that it was a little bit more kind of, I don't want to, like, I don't want to say Amish, but that kind of thing, which obviously uh-huh. goes on to be a little bit. Okay. But when you got kind of plunged straight into this diner scene, threw me for a loop completely, to be honest. Yeah, you're not expecting that, are you? Uh, no. Um, a kid who will come to learn is uh, Joby. Job. Job. Yeah. I like Joby, though. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Bert calls him Joby later on, um, repeatedly. I don't know if you can say that. You know we record this podcast in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Okay, I'll settle with Job. That's yeah, fine. sure. Um, but yeah, they go to a diner, um, which is set upon by uh, jumper-clad street toughs. <laughs> If that is your idea of toughs in any way, shape, or form, then I don't know how you get by in life. I've lived a very solid existence. Yeah. I'm with you. I was quite glad that their child narration thing wasn't something that persisted all the way through. I kind of felt like if I was going to be getting a lot of that, it was going to start maybe kind of pushing my buttons. Did you feel like, and, and in that, that diner scene, when they suddenly turn, it feels like, because at the start of the movie, because I was the same with that scene, it, like I was watching the movie and I, I was like expecting a certain tone and it's really dark. Very much so. It's incredibly dark, actually, in this early running because things take a turn. I'd say for the worst. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say definitely for the worst. That's a way of putting it. Yes, a bunch of people in this diner are very violently murdered. And I think that that might actually speak to one of the biggest kind of unexpected style things in it. Because I had it in my head that this was going to be way more psychological or telepathic or something. And then obviously, I mean, a lot of people die really graphically here. Yeah, we get our first kind of glimpse of Courtney Gaines here as Malachi. Courtney Gaines probably best known for appearing in The Burbs or Rob Zombie's Halloween. And he's great in this. Sort of comes across like he's already an uh, adult, even though he's... 10 years old or something. I think it's important to mention at this point that later on when you're kind of introduced to more of the townsfolk, if you like, the ones that are certainly left behind, the the children part of the title becomes a little bit of a misnomer because some of them are very clearly in adulthood. (laughs) Do you think that's more of a casting issue than... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the people of the calm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a Christopher Plummer in there somewhere near the back. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the oldest actor you could come up with? Yeah, Christopher it was, Plummer. It was. Um, Stan, very quickly, I normally ask people this right at the start, and I didn't actually. And you were talking about when you were watching this for the first time. How old were you when you saw this for the first time? I was probably, I think, like mid 20s. So I wasn't crazy young or anything. Um, so I was, I was going to say, see, did you see it in the cinema? I'm guessing no. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean. When it came out, I would have been about three, so I, I definitely didn't see it in the cinema. But. Yeah, pretty much the same age as me. I did not see this one in the cinema. No, I was I, I was today years old when I saw it. Well done. <laughs> I like the fact we've all got our ages in to make sure everyone knows that we, we weren't old enough to see it at the cinema when it was released. What is important uh, is that everyone knows that three young, virile men are discussing this film. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I tell you, I don't feel young at all today. I have this weird nervy thing in my neck and shoulder. It's causing me to kind of have one eye a little bit open like sloth for the Goonies. And I, I really feel old today. I feel my age. I think that sounds quite serious, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you should maybe do is stop fannying about recording a podcast and go to A&E. <laughs> Well, uh, the kind of the murders and the kind of massacre in the diner that we were talking about goes on. Also, don't want to blow by this without talking about Isaac, who surveys the scene from the outside of the diner here. Um, Isaac, complex character, a complex performance, and a kind of complex story behind the actor as well. Mm, the puppet master. Yeah, I, I, again, I, th- I actually think the cast across the board in this are pretty strong. 
And I think John Franklin as Isaac's brilliant. Absolutely. One of those things, like you can see from a casting perspective, it's going to be really tough to cast a village of murderous children and them be in any way authentic. So what you need is one one man uh, who looks like a child. <laughs> they, they put wigs on fully grown men and make them walk around on their knees. <laughs> I think like um, everyone in the kind of children of the corn themselves, every one of them who kind of takes on a kind of antagonist role or a kind of defined antagonist role is pretty good though. I think that j- and yeah. it's all range of different kind of performances, but a lot of people are doing some really good work in there, I think. I think they commit to it as well, because as a concept, it's sort of mid-80s, almost like a joke concept, the effects and everything, but they, they commit fully to what's going on. You're right, I think that it's one of those things where this could come off very silly if you have all these kids in kind of like um, period attire being all these like folksy affectations at each other. Like, I think that you have to commit to make that work. And I think that, that level of authenticity is in that dynasty where, where it is actually, you know, genuinely shocking. It feels really quite modern in its um, authenticity, I felt, with that scene. John Franklin, he, he's had a weird career. Like, obviously, he was a grown man hired to play a child in this, and he's got a, he's got a growth hormone deficiency, which means that he's really small, and he has that boyish Benjamin Button look about him. But he went on to play some weird roles. Like He played uh, Chucky when Chucky had to be, like, you had to see him like running around, and he went on to play Cousin It in The Addams Family. That's what I recognise him from. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> That's, it's a pretty unique chart to, to find someone. Like yeah, that. to have an arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as this is going on, we get kind of shot of uh, who we will learn is uh, Job's sister, Sarah. And also that she's, has she, has she had some kind of premonition? She has the this? sight. She's got like a second sight, hasn't she, which she um, uses to draw. Her pictures are basically uh, snapshots of what's to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, our adult protagonists we meet here as well, Bert and Vicky. I would say both doing pretty good work here, mm. generally. Well, more Vicky than Bert, I would say. I would say... Uh, he threw me when in that moment when he does run over the kid and um, and he looks incredibly calm. <laughs> <laughs> He's a doctor. He immediately goes he, into doctor mode, despite the fact that, to his knowledge, in that immediate instance, he has killed a child. And but he takes on Vicky a lot as well. I mean, he takes for quite a while before he leaves the car, if I remember rightly. So. He's also incredibly flippant because she, like, when he's looking at the, he's looking at the body of Joseph. Uh, he's asked, "Is he dead?" And he's just like, "Yep, he sure is." <laughs> like, he's incredibly flippant about what amounts to him killing a child. Probably the most flippant thing after that is is putting the kid in the boot. <laughs> yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. And I'm not sure they ever take the child out, do they? I don't, I don't want to put a spoiler in there, but I'm kind of cycling back through it in my head now, and I can't pin down an instance where you see that kid again. I think that kid's lobbed, lobbed in the. I think that kid's still in the boot of the car at the end when they drive off i think so well i don't think they can drive off because the engine at the end's clogged up with eels of gum but uh, they certainly walk away presumably leaving that poor boy that like has cops to fester and rot in the boot uh they set off for nebraska though and like you say at this point they hit a child with a car we know more about the child than they do at this point yeah joseph Joseph? yeah that's correct he is trying to leave he's had enough of isaac i think rightly um he was fair in that assessment (laughs) yeah, <laughs> 100% <laughs> everyone keeps talking about how creepy Isaac is and it's absolutely correct <laughs> the fact that he's leaving is treated with I guess anger <laughs> and, he, and he is uh, stabbed to bits and then run over by a car yeah, and was... got, yeah what a way to go yeah and then that's where it, it sort of it, you get that kind of Lord of the Flies it, even in that early uh, scene you know 
that sort of vibe of it, which again sort of lands it with a level of authenticity, sort of authenticity, I think. I think that the way that his death plays out is really pretty good. Um, I did like a lot of the kind of like the frantic zooming in of kind of ominous looking corn. <laughs> Um, at this point but I think the actual death itself is great and I think that when they hit him and like you say obviously they, they take like six to eight minutes to take stock of the situation before he gets out of the car but I think it's great as well it's a good reveal when he turns him over Yeah. because yeah. obviously yeah. We, we knew but he, he was stabbed off camera and I think that when you get the first look of him it is kind of quite shocking and it does work quite nicely Mm-hmm. Can I just take a minute to say I think Linda Hamilton's brilliant and incredibly underrated. Yeah, absolutely brilliant in this film, and I think when you see the other actors, a number of them doing good performances, and you're you're aware that perhaps the environment for them to give good performances it could have been a little bit tough, maybe because of the budget or whatever. And she gives just a completely solid, absolutely believable. From the first time you see her, she's incredibly natural and incredibly believable. Absolutely. I'm not sure, you know, Peter Horton, I think he does a great job, but he's nowhere near as believable as, as she is. I'd be inclined to agree. He has some amazing slapstick moments in this film, like there's, where he takes an incredibly, an incredible pratfall at one point. Yeah. And there's another moment as well where he, he's trying to run away from Malachi and he runs at a low-hanging tire or something like that. Ah, it's like he was face first into a beam or something. Very yeah. silly. But yeah, I think that, uh, I don't want to jump back too far, but when we first meet them, obviously, they're kind of like, you see them in bed before they leave. She's going to sing him like a birthday serenade and she hits play on a tape deck and starts singing and dancing and stuff. And I always think that from an acting perspective, it must be quite difficult to do that, to like fake properly lose yourself in something like that. And I always think that it must be quite hard to play. Mm. and I liked that, and I kind of got sold on her straight from there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, while they're figuring out what's going on here, they're watched by someone in the corn, which we later find out to be Malachi. It's always Malachi. Yeah, if in doubt, it's Malachi, as we'll come to learn. Who else would it be? (laughs) Bert goes exploding, finds a suitcase. Vicky defies orders, gets out of the car, or so we think. Nightmare sequence here, not bad. By the way, before even this, Bert is talking about how there's something very wrong here. He makes an incredible leap. To, I mean, he's right, but at this point, he hasn't found the suitcase or anything like that. He's just killed a boy. I mean, that is pretty wrong in the overall scheme of things. <laughs> no, but he, he's looking at it in the bigger picture, Mitch. He's sensing something beyond that. He's just covering himself. <laughs> just like, no, oh, no, there's definitely something else that's going on wrong. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, like, this kid's definitely dead. I definitely killed him, but that's... I'm just getting a hunch that's the least of our worries. Yeah, I don't think I'm responsible fully for it. <laughs> Definitely. The important thing is that everyone knows I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Despite the fact that it appears that my car has stabbed them to death. Nasty. Job and Sarah playing Monopoly here is pretty good, I think. You see, this is weird. They're playing Monopoly, but at the same time, they're dressed like 1930s gangsters. It's not exactly sort of dead on to a period, I'm not sure. <laughs> It's an important direction, I think. They're kind of, they've got a couple of things here. They've got kind of like what would be considered contraband here, don't they? Yeah, crayons and Monopoly. Yeah. Malachi kind of comes across them here. Because how? Because it's Malachi. Yeah. <laughs> because, once again, who else but Malachi? I think we can break it down simpler here. What Malachi's job is, certainly in the early running, is he is Isaac's enforcer. He's there to enforce the rules, so he prowls around, basically just digging people up for various infractions, at which point they are kind of taken away. Their infractions are punished in a manner of ways, kind of at the discretion of Isaac. He's the physicality that Isaac doesn't have, isn't he? Yeah, he's like the hired goon. 
<laughs> but yeah, he he catches them playing Monopoly, and this game of Monopoly ends like every game of Monopoly ends with knives. Yeah, same at my family Christmas. So. Yeah, <laughs> we actually we get our first kind of proper look at Isaac here when he takes them to Isaac to enforce their kind of rules because he's come across this. So yeah, Isaac, performance wise here, what are we thinking? Brilliant, I think he's great. Very good. He's the kind of you know the creepy heart of the whole film rests with Isaac, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If that's not working, if you're not going with it, then the whole thing kind of falls apart. Yes. Yeah. Very good. He's given it his all as well, which I think is pretty clear from the first time you see him. And I think increasingly as it goes on, and he kind of gets more kind of evangelical and more kind of... Shrill. I guess shrill, yeah. That's but I think, Yeah, I agree. I think he's totally intrinsic to this working at all, really. Well, I did miss, and perhaps would have liked... Would, there's something about the way the, that it opens that, that means I'm not quite... I'm not fully with Isaac as well as with the heroes you know like something that might explain just a touch more of what's driving him like if it was the he who walks behind the corn whatever it is um <laughs> sure. understanding that a little bit earlier might have then filled him with even more power and, and menace yeah and it might have made this kind of uh, this proper introduction to him like maybe a shade more impactful if it was a little bit more grounded and a little bit more background before then well yeah because it's only very briefly tossed away they mentioned briefly when isaac came to town yeah he just i don't know just buffled in in the breeze one day and decided that this was where he was going to take root yeah and that's it, there's something sort of nice about that but there is it's quite a big leap between like a kid doing that and then being able to sort of puppet master all the children into murdering everyone in town and taking over a and controlling a kind of supernatural deity that lives in the corn. It's quite a big leap. I mean, yeah, I mean when you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> well, this is going on. Bert and Vicky, they're back in the car. They have, at this point, safely stashed the dead body. Like, say Andy outside out of mind. They stop at a gas station, and this guy that they meet at the gas station, to me, is like the opposite of the gas station guy you meet in every horror film. Mm. Or nor- like Because he- that guy is normally the harbinger. Yeah, sure. Uh, from the cabin in the woods, kind of that kind of stereotype. That whole, you kids best be going back the way you came type guy. Whereas this guy's incredibly welcoming, but you can tell from first look that his dog is a goner. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just going to go, isn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, Sarge is not long for this world. Yeah, they, they kind of have this exchange, then they get lost almost immediately and seem to be drawn closer to this Gatlin, which yeah. is the village town. Yep. Yeah. All roads lead to Gatlin, it seems. Yeah. I was sort of trying to work that out because it, it works in the moment when you're watching. You're sort of, it's a bit spooky and you're like, oh, they've gone the wrong way. Then when you sort of think back, it's hard to grasp. Does that mean they uh, it has control of the roads and stuff? Yeah, I think that um, I agree. I think that the whole kind of, oh, I was pretty sure we're going the right way. I'm pretty sure we saw this sign and them getting drawn into this thing is a very, it's a nice, creepy idea. Mm. but it does require a lot of elasticity with what the corn slash he who walks behind the rose can do yeah to be honest i think there, there could have been another MacGuffin used to draw them to gatlin sooner than have them driving around these roads kind of aimlessly until they ultimately decide to go there anyway with a dead boy in the boot <laughs> never forget that <laughs> regardless of how nice these guys seem at no point in this process should we forget that there is a dead child in their boot and to the best of their knowledge they killed him (laughs) another good isaac moment here uh, after our friendly gas station guy is offed off camera Uh, but another good isaac moment here when he addresses the other kids following uh, joseph's murder and at this point we learn a little bit more about that obviously it's kind of 
fairly heavily implied near the start, but basically the, he's killed because they didn't take kindly to this notion of him leaving. Kind of cool visual again here. I like the kind of mummified policeman on the big corn crucifix. Yeah, interesting. The skeleton looks quite happy. It has a weird mummified smile on, which I think undercuts the gloominess of the whole affair. Maybe, maybe they forced that with corn or something. Again, we're, we're playing fast and loose with the powers of he who walks behind the rose. So do they. It's okay. <laughs> At this point, we've got Bert and Vicky kind of like, they're just kind of driving around Gatlin, and yeah, we're kind of seeing the upshot of the fact that all the adults have been killed sometime before, because it's a total ghost town. I think that's a really, it's, it's a, another impactful image when they come into town, and it is a ghost town. But there was something about the way it was filmed that was, to me, it seemed different than the cliched kind of tumbleweed ghost town. It did have a feel. It didn't feel like they just, you know, got everyone to stand just slightly out of shot and then film film a bit of a town. It, it felt an authenticity that felt a little bit higher than it than it might have been with a film like that. I think a lot of it that comes down to the production design in this film, which I actually think is really strong. Yeah, absolutely. All of that. It, it all feels like it comes from somewhere. I think they obviously put a lot of effort into trying to construct this the notion of this deity and uh, how everything else sort of grows from there. I mean, I don't know if they built this whole town, but I suspect they might have. Well, although the budget they were working with was pretty low for, I wonder, I wonder what they'd have been able to do. But I feel, I feel like just in terms, in terms of just generally what this achieves visually, I think it does quite a lot with not much. Mm. I do kind of feel like the budget runs out a little bit when it calls for visual effects later on. That's probably true. I think that was that was sort of visual effects in 1984 outside of Star Wars, wasn't it? I guess. I like uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, what was out? Ghostbusters was out, and Back to the Future was round about then. So uh, no, that's true. Outside of uh, using ILM. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the film kind of finds a way to marry together two groups of protagonists at this point because you get Bert and Vicky basically into a house that appears to be deserted, but then they find Sarah and Job eventually. Mm. I think that, given my general low-key resentment for child actors, I think that both of them are pretty good. Yeah, what Sarah and Job? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're very, they're very solid for for playing the kind of sweet, naive children, you know. Well, Job, Robbie Keegan, he would go on to be in the Monster Squad, and in the kind of intervening years. Between this and the Monster Squad, what, what would that have been about? Three years, four years, or something like that. He's actually a really strong actor by the time he's in the Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. At this point, Vicky decides to stay with uh, Sarah while Bert soldiers on a risky venture, at any rate, I would say. Um, in such an unknown quantity of a town. Another thing that I really like here, because obviously around this time as they take off Malachi and some of the other children, inverted commas, amass at the house, but Bert follows the church bell, again a kind of risky venture I would say, and happens on this birthday ceremony for a 19 year old called Amos. The way this plays out is really cool and genuinely quite disturbing as well. Yeah, but it's got a kind of classic folk horror feel to it, hasn't it? It's almost also in films like uh, Logan's Run and that that, mm. that terrifying notion of that there's a cut-off point where you can't get older. It's kind of something that you see in that has that core horror to it. When I first watched this, uh, right now, uh, <laughs> all that time ago, I thought that what might happen there was that either Joe or Sarah was going to like lead him back there in the style of the Wicker Man. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, there's actually a few points that feel like that's going to be the way it goes, but for the most part, Job and Sarah are kind of unwitting participants almost in the events of the town. It feels hard to integrate those two characters with the rest of the children. You sort of feel like the other children might have dispatched them or by that point, but they, they serve a, a narrative purpose. 
Yeah, that's fair, actually. Considering how uh, kind of harshly treated we see some of the other ones being and that kind of thing, I think that it is maybe kind of surprising within the logic of the story as presented that they've survived this long. <laughs> Going back to the scene that you were talking about, Mitch, in the church with uh, Amos's birthday party. Yes. I don't mind telling you, right? If I was in this situation and these kids were coming at me brandishing pitchforks and scythes and stuff, I don't mind telling you, I would start throwing wild haymakers at children. That'd be understandable. <laughs> I would be like picking up children and using them as a cudgel to clear the space from around me, clear the space of other children. And if any of the other children are hit with my child weapon, then so be so it. Be it. Yep, yep, they do it on themselves. Yep, ab- absolutely. <laughs> yep, it's, uh, it's every man for themselves here, quite clearly. Just like shaking your head and like architects of your own demise, children. Yeah, yeah, and Bert doesn't do that, and look where it gets him, he gets stabbed in the chest. He does get stabbed in the chest at a hilarious kind of foot chase ensues. But round about this time as well, we get the first kind of seeds of resentment and the relationship between Isaac and Malachi. This was a cool choice, I thought. The kind of infighting between Isaac and Malachi, didn't see that coming. Power play. Yeah, this kind of hostile takeover vibe. Mm. Well, I mean, I think as scary and weird as Isaac is, and he is, Malachi's the scarier character because he everyone's terrified of Malachi because his job is to kill people and rough them up. And we as an audience I think we've seen we've seen him do that on a number of you know a number of times by this point. It's part of us that goes we're just you know you can just pick him up that little lad. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I think at this point, it's that one of the reasons that works is because we are so very kind of grounded in what he's capable of and what he can do and what he does do with impunity. One thing I will say is it's interesting that the film never goes down. I don't think any of the kids, with the exception of Isaac and uh, Malachi at Isaac's hand, I don't think any of the kids die. Like, so they never go down the road of that film, The Children, the film from a few years ago, or uh, like Who Can Kill a Child or something like that. No, it's true. They sort of they, they they begin with a big impact with Joseph's murder, and I think they sort of let that the fear, you know the knowledge that it can happen sort of underscore everything else, doesn't it, all the way through. Yeah, never by the hands of an adult does a child die. Yeah, apart from being run over by one's car. Yeah. <laughs> That's entirely the cow's fault. Worth mentioning that while this has been going on, Vicky's been kidnapped. Yeah, she found a, a pretty unsettling crayon doodle of her being stabbed to bits by Malachi. You wouldn't want to find that in a random kid's bedroom that you've just arrived at. You wouldn't really be in a random kid's bedroom anyway, to be honest. <laughs> Especially when you well, ask the yeah. kid to essentially draw you, like, in a fun way. Not in a Jack and Titanic type way. No, no that would also be weird. Definitely, definitely not something you want going down the random what? kids' bedroom as well, yeah. I would hope for straight down the line, cartoon, crayon image of a woman standing smiling. Nice yeah. bright sun and maybe with a smile on its face. Yeah, if the, if the little girl draws you lying down naked on a chaise long, that's weird as well. Yeah, both should make you question why you're still there. <laughs> um, now, you guys both mentioned before we hit record on this that you uh, you both have young children. So hypothetically, if you were in a situation where, you know, you gave your kids some crayons, kind of left them to it, let them get artistic, and what they kept on coming up with were grim prophecies of your own deaths, how long would it be before you confiscated the crayons? Well, I'd be curious to see what they did next. I'd probably be more inclined to just leave. Do you just leave your child? Just abandon your child? Maybe leave their own devices? To pick them up and take them. <laughs> They're old. They've had their lives already. <laughs> also, you can see the future. I'm pretty sure you can look after yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the, the crayons are the problem, Mitch, if I'm honest. Okay, go on. Well, it's the, it's the, the, the 
The puddles. <laughs> yes. That's all I've got. <laughs> so do you think her power to see visions is linked to he who walks behind the row of the corn or whatever? Or is that just a different power that she just might have had anyway? Uh, yeah. Like... like in the kind of shining type way that... Because obviously this is Stephen King. That is, yeah. But I'm not certain. I don't think that character was in the Stephen King short story. So okay. I wonder if when they wrote the those characters in, I think, because I understand that Stephen King, I think, did a first draft of this screenplay. And if I'm, I might have got this totally wrong, but I, I think then the studio or the producers actually then didn't like it so much because it dwelt too much on the driving, sort of arriving, it took too long and et cetera. But then they, the next draft, not by him, put these two nice children in it. So I wonder if perhaps that they were sort of the writer. I'm probably looking at that, can't we? No, you're um, you're 100% right. That's right. It was um, a first draft from Stephen King that did try and ground it a little bit more in those kind of elements. And they went for eventually a screenplay written by George Goldsmith, which apparently was more violent and had just a generally just kind of a more conventional narrative. Stephen King's one apparently had more to do with the kind of uh, uprising and the children, which I think actually is in a lot of ways maybe the part of the story that i would want to see a little bit more of mm-hmm. and, it, and it's interesting that in which case if george goldsmith sort of stuck on this shining like ability to to this character it's never really explored in any detail beyond the fact that we know she can use her crayons to kind of predict the future no, but i don't not like it you know it's quite it's really unsettling and it's visually when the camera you know, pushes in on that. It's impactful. It's hard to see exactly where it comes from. Isaac seems to hold her in some regard, though, because he does mention her powers a couple of times yeah, that's in passing. So he, I don't know if he maybe uses her as some kind of... Isaac says that she predicted the arrival of Bert and Vicky. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's, it's an interesting question you're kind of posing there, though, and like whether or not this is actually shackled or not, if it's just like a coincidental power of a kid in the neighbourhood. Mm. <laughs> Bert, uh, this is the point where Andy, you were talking about this earlier. There's kind of like a, a like a kind of comedic foot chase that does involve him at one point running fully face first into I think yeah I think it's a tire that's hanging on a wall. He is kind of rescued a little bit by Job and they take cover in a fallout shelter for a while. And it's at this point that uh, Malachi's hostile takeover kind of works. And unsurprisingly, given his physical presence, like we've talked about, he does this with relative ease. And by relative ease, I mean he decides he's going to do it and he does it instantly. Yeah, and he ragdolls Isaac around because he's so small. Isaac's not happy about that. He's brilliant here when he when he's been usurped by Malachi. His performance and his raving is superb, next level stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I was talking about him kind of going like me getting more sold in his performance as it goes on, this is the stuff I was talking about. Right. When uh, yeah, when he's when he's kind of getting carried off and stuff like that, and he's getting absolutely feverish. It's great. <laughs> Malachi orders uh, Isaac to be sacrificed. Uh, well, they're they're kind of trying also they try and bait. Bert out hiding a little bit here as well. Bert eventually fights Malachi in what is a pretty funny slap fight. <laughs> <laughs> I love the when he uh, is sitting on top of Malachi, just kind of slap bitch slapping him around. And, like, it really goes to show that at the end of the day, he is a child fighting a man. And without your knife, the man is going to win. It completely crystallizes their relationship. All that Isaac has is the power to use mind control, the psychology but as soon as he's lost that, he has nothing. Yes. Or so at least we think. It, it, is this deity, this thing, actually backing him up or not? 
that question gets answered in pretty resounding fashion. Oh, does it, Mitch? <laughs> would you care to break down exactly what happens here? And... No, I would not. I would like someone else to do that for me. <laughs> I'm going to open up the floor because I don't have the fucking foggiest of what happens here. Yeah, things start to get um, a little bit, uh, a little bit rapid fire and a little bit fraught. You understand? You want to be the kind of spirit guide on how exactly this unfolds. Why don't one of you guys take me, you know, and then, then I'll riff off of. <laughs> I love that we're passing this around like the tub that it is. Like, uh, okay, um, what, I, what I see happening is um, they're tied to corn cob crucifixes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're sacrificed to this entity. They are being Isaac and Vicky. Yeah, and Amos is somehow involved. It's his birthday, so he needs to pass. Oh my god. He, t- he turns up and says, It's my birthday, uh, so it's my turn. Basically, he's like, It's my birthday, so it's my turn to die. And then Malachi's like, No, nah, mate, change of plan. We're going to kill these two people. What a downer, eh? I know, oh. eh? Stand down. <laughs> <laughs> this is the fucking worst birthday ever. Now I've just got a big scar on my chest from cutting myself. Basically, it just seems to overtake him out of the blue this weird force, this entity, and then rockets them into the air. Mm, yeah. There's no real incantation involved or any process. Sounded quite good the way you said it then. <laughs> so, well, we made that, that was, like it was going to be extremely challenging and you made it look exceptionally simple. <laughs> I like the fact that at this point, but obviously Bert kind of rescues Linda, cuts her loose. They take cover with the two protagonist kids, uh, Job and Sarah, in a barn. I love the fact that they just happen on an expositional Bible verse. Yeah, what are we dealing with here? What is this entity? Because it's at some points it seems to be a cloud, at other times it seems to be the actual embodiment of corn, and at other times it seems to be like a graboid from Tremors. I think we can definitely nail it down that it, it can shapeshift based on what we're doing. It's hard to pin down, but <laughs> it's a little bit of a... But, and I sort of felt like... That was, and again, obviously the the effects sort of let it down, and and um, or, I don't want to say let it down. That's that sounds harsh, but but perhaps the budget, like you said, wasn't wasn't there to um, to not only pull off the effects, but also spend the the time involved in actually sort of experimenting and developing what it is. You know, like the the development of a creature uh, design or whatever is is very costly, and and the work and time involved behind that. <laughs> and it did feel like they sort of stuck on several different bits in a Frankenstein-like way that, that didn't mean it had a... It's, we didn't know where it was coming from, you know. Even to the point where they, they kind of reintroduced the, the corpse of Isaac as some deep-throated, raspy zombie. Mm. But, I, but I also felt like it was like... I wasn't that... There was It was impactful. Like, yeah. Something that There was something in it, and you sort of went with it, and even though it was a bit chaotic and a bit like all over the place, you wanted it to work as an audience, didn't you? Did you find that? I think that, looking at it from that angle, I think that the re-emergence of Isaac does tie together what does at that point feel like quite a lot of disparate elements. Yeah. And uh, and I think that it probably does land as an overall bit. But I, 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 think, that he, I think that he looks fucking great when he comes back. I, I like, actually, that as the kind of final scene plays out, it does become more like the calm itself is the enemy yeah yeah because that's all it takes to ultimately win the day is to burn the calm yeah and that's exactly that felt that that feels good that that's that it's in there even that it's possessed inside of the calm 
Yeah, I think it, I think the kind of like going for that or kind of trying to sell you more on that at this point kind of makes the kind of method of actually defeating it feel a bit less arbitrary. <laughs> and it's a, it's a kind of it's an original monster, isn't it? Like corn. title. <laughs> 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 I mean, I mean, yeah. What I really like is um, when they kind of decide that a Molotov cocktail and sprinklers full of like petrol are going to save the day. <clears throat> he lobs that Molotov cocktail at, hilariously again because he's he's kind of a clown man. It, it, it doesn't break. He lets a little boy run back to a lit Molotov cocktail. <laughs> yeah, that's like returning to a fizzling firework. Like that's going to take that child's face off. But he he has a dead kid in his boot. <laughs> He, he has priors. <laughs> yeah, and he's surrounded by children. He would just, he'd kill as soon as look at. I think he feels like maybe it's his last chance to, you know, physically harm another one before. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess I got to make this one count. I believe as well, it's, rather than petrol, it's a kind of fuel, but it's actually made from the alcohol of corn. It's not just random. Yeah, because earlier on, after the petrol station guy's killed, uh, yes. Isaac has a go at Malachi for killing him because they need the fuel, but Malachi does say something along the lines of, we've got plenty of fuel that we've made from corn. Chekhov's yeah. corn fuel. Chekhov's corn fuel. <laughs> they refer to it as gasohol. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Gasoline. Yeah. Nope. 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 Gasohol. That's it's, it's that term's lobbed around a couple of times towards the end there. Is that an actual? Is that an actual thing, or is that just a thing in the movie? I mean, it sounds incredibly made up. It, I mean, yeah. I'm. I. I. I'm fully. I'm aware of that. It certainly seems to be a real thing. Um, gasohol E20, gasohol 95 is a mixture of ethanol and benzene, but contains a smaller <laughs> amount of ethanol. Oxford Dictionary calls gasohol a mixture of petrol and ethanol used as fuel in internal combustion engines. There you go. Because I thought, I thought it was, it, it, to start with, it was literally just, you know, made up, I'd like, say Texaco or something, but it's <laughs> the thing. They could, I mean, they could, those kids could have been selling that stuff. Absolutely. But I mean, when you're driven and compelled to kill adults, as and when they come to your town, selling fuel is probably quite difficult. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I see. Um, the field is not giving up without a fight here, but Andy, you touched on the graboid thing. I think that my favourite embodiment of he who walks behind the rose is when he is, like, when Joe was running back for the Molotov cocktail mm -hmm. and the ground's kind of like chasing him almost. Sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. That I think that, that plays out really nicely. I like that. If I if that was you know if you were saying there was sort of iconic moments in the film, you'd say that 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 was sort of one of those. Ultimately, obviously, the field burns. The field doesn't burn much. The field explodes in an enormous fireball. If I was a child <laughs> and I was responsible for an explosion of this magnitude, I would be so happy. <laughs> I was one of those kids that liked to burn stuff. They grow up to, into adults that like to burn stuff. Those kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, ultimately, there is an explosion. The field, and presumably he who walks behind the rose, uh, is kind of vanquished. They escape. For this film. For this film. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Bert, Vicky, Job, and Sarah escape. You get this kind of wholesome surrogate family moment. Yeah, this is weird. It's like, oh, what are we going to do with you adorable little maniacs? <laughs> it's, I mean, you just leave them. You leave them behind. You leave them with the, the body of their fallen friend. It sounds, it sounds like you would, yeah. That's... <laughs> I, was, I would have washed my hands of this whole affair the minute I hit that boy in the road. I was going to say, I was like, Andy, I don't think you're speaking on behalf of the room half as much as you think you are. <laughs> also, whether or not, like, you take these kids into your, like, into your life, which 
kind of seems what's going to happen here. They, they're going to, these kids are going to come and live with them the same way that Sloth does at the end of the Goonies. I know I've mentioned Sloth twice now. Banging but, that drum pretty hard. Yeah. But, but Chunk never asks his parents if he can bring this enormous fucking mutant to live with them. Like the Toxic Avenger. Just You don't just take two random children in who have either killed people or certainly participated in multiple murders. I don't, I don't think it's that easy either, is it? Like, I don't think you just say, oh, the family's two kids, they're going to loop, they're going to come. I think you have to go through a process, like a <laughs> legal framework or something. Yeah, and there's going to be questions. Where did you get them? Where are the real parents? They were murdered in a town. You know, the, I, the, whole t- the whole town's adult population was annihilated by children. Look, don't look in my boot. <laughs> I think we can all agree that Children of the Corn takes certain creative liberties with the adoption process. I think the end is wrapped up far too neatly. I mean, it is, I agree, but let's not forget that uh, Rachel, one of the kind of like uh, head Children of the Corn from earlier, uh, emerges in the back seat with a sickle and almost kills Bert before he jams her head in the car door. Gave a little spark at the end. I mean, like, when it, when she popped up behind him, I laughed, but in that kind of like... In that, ha yeah, moment, because I love stingers, <laughs> shamelessly. But basically, he jams her head in the door. Vicky quips uh, something about buying her a get-well card from Seattle. And then literally, it just cuts to a wide shot of the car and the end just appears. You know, I think I think it, the, the whole film could have would have justified a much more nihilistic ending. Agreed. I, I mean, originally, I'm sure there was, I read something that there was a cut where Linda Hamilton dies on the cross and they pull her eyes out um which i would have quite i'd have quite liked to have seen that no mate not just that you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again it's an nihilistic ending you know I, I would have liked to maybe have seen the the doctor come to a sticky end in the car at the end there and you can because you could see you could imagine them you know them being murdered and and you know like the way in, in the way the wicker man he's yeah. absorbed mm-hmm. into into that society into that and and taken um, and you could see, you can imagine a shot where they're murdered and everything, and 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 you just see the corn, and it's like their bodies have gone into the earth and become part of this deity, this thing that's underneath it. Well, I like that. Easy seeing what you do for a job, man. <laughs> I'm sure the short story has a much darker ending. I'm going to read that now. Yeah, I'm going to have to. It's in Night Shift, the Stephen King anthology, which uh, I noticed Bart and Vicky had on their dashboard. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Um, so when we're talking about kind of alternate ways this could have gone, or ways this could have gone darker with an ending, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to get spoilery, but have you guys both seen The Invitation? Yes. You know how at the end of that, you get this indicator that this isn't a microcosm and this is happening everywhere? Yes. yes. I think that like if you had them with the kind of the burning field, but also this awareness that this was not a pocket of people, this was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of saw them kind of like just kind of uh, staring out on this kind of bleak new reality that they were about to walk into. Mm. Yeah, well, they're heading for that town. It was Herringford or something like that. Maybe they could have got there and the the same thing's happening there. And this is Yeah, there is no escape. Yeah. All roads lead to Gatlin. Which which is a good tagline for the film and also for the Gatlin tourist board. (laughs) And uh, with that, I guess we're out on Children of the Corn. Uh, Stan, hell of a pick, this one. Really interesting choice, I think. In a lot of ways, kind of like le- uh, considerably less outwardly ridiculous than a lot of the things that some people pick in this. I think. Obviously, it's got some it's got some elements of real strangeness to it. I'm really glad I've seen this, and I'm kind of surprised it's taken me this long to get around to it. Yeah, I think it's one of those films where you sort of know it's there, right? You kind of 
you've, I'm sure you've, you've sort of heard of it and knew it was there. And, and then finally, when you, when you actually get to see it, there is, there, like I said, there is something to it. There is a quality to it, which is sort of surprising given perhaps the, the ornateness of the, of the concept and the low, low budget they're working with. I think that this both getting a cold critical reception at the time and also garnering a cult, uh, cult following since, I don't think either of those two things are surprising. Yeah. I actually think it's quite a strong Stephen King adaptation. In the sense of, have you, did you say, you've, have you read the, the short? Uh, yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. I've got, oh, you I'm, have? Night okay. Shift, Night Shift's knocking yeah. out behind me, but it's been a long time since I revisited it. Um, but it's... Um, his film, the, the kind of book to film of Stephen King's always been a bit weird. Like, we've done things in the show before, much like The Lawnmower Man, which is a Stephen King adaptation and title only. Yeah. Um, I actually think this one's quite strong by comparison to some of it. I think it's better than things like Firestarter. I think it's, I'd say it's even better than things like Cujo. And do you remember, having read the, the story, how, how close it follows? I think it starts off very close. Okay, so having very quickly checked what actually happens here, uh-huh. it follows it very closely up to a point and then pulls in a far more nihilistic direction. That's spoilers for the short story alert, by the way. But uh, basically what we have here is that uh, Vicky dies much in the style of the cut that you talked about. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Bert tries to flee, every row in the cornfield closes up. So he can't, uh, yeah. So he can't escape, and then he's killed by a giant red-eyed monster that emerges from the cornfield. Apparently, in a kind of coda to the story, we find out that there's this um, resentment amongst the kids of he who walks uh, behind the rose. Right. Like they're not, they're not like disciples of him as much as I think that they're kind of like resentfully carrying out his will out of fear. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. See that you feel like you you get the story, don't you? Then. You get you get the monster. You understand the power and why the children are doing what they're doing. You you sort of it grounds it all much. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, I don't even say want to say much more, but it it it, it grounds it in a way that it, it answers questions that aren't aren't answered in the film. It makes your kind of monster logic a lot more cohesive. I think. Yes. It takes Sorry. that resentment of, like you said, of the one that walks behind the rose, and it kind of transfers it onto Isaac, which I think works. Yeah, absolutely. You see, you can feel the kind of folk horror-y notion of this. It almost harks back to uh, fairy tales or myths where they, they have to feed a dragon or something. You know, the, mm-hmm. the townsfolk have to feed, you know, new people coming into the dragon or princesses to the dragon. And, and from the outside, we see what we see, it, it looks horrific. But from the inside, there's a reason they're doing it to stay alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's funny you say that because there is an early drawing in this film of, I believe, Vicky being fed to a dragon. Ah. Yeah. So I think that maybe that's a point that we can all kind of agree on then, is that like there's a lot of really interesting and really good stuff going on in this film, but I think that ultimately it would probably benefit from a darker ending, a more nihilistic ending. I think that that would fit both the story and the tone of the material here a lot more. I think I could also do with less aimless wandering. <laughs> yeah, I think that probably, yeah, aimless wandering is probably in the majority of films where <laughs> probably could do with less. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, Stan, before we finish up, do you want to take some time to talk A Serial Killer's Guide to Life? Yeah. So uh, your film played Fright Fest this past summer. Yeah. Uh, your story of getting to that is pretty unusual. <laughs> yeah. So um, so it's my, my debut feature film, uh, writer-director. My my um, son was born uh, just a few hours before the, the world premiere at, at Fright Fest. 
And um, I made this film with with my wife, uh, Poppy Rowe. She plays one of the leads and also um, produced the film with me and Giles Alderson and Charity Wakefield. And we produced it through our production company and we edited the film together. So I say that to give context so that when she gave birth and um, I left the hospital uh, after she'd given birth and went straight to the premiere without her, that was uh, it was a big sacrifice that she made to, to stay behind with our beautiful son. But yeah. I was I was the one that got to to go and see go go to the world premiere to the sold out Prince Charles and um, uh, and and tell everyone, um, which was it was the most incredible twenty four hours to go. <laughs> to way of putting it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the film itself, it's available select theaters. Also, there's um, a physical and also streaming platforms through Arrow Video. That's right. So, um, so it's uh, all digital platforms, Amazon, iTunes. Um, there's a great 50-minute uh, documentary on the making of the film on iTunes as well and Apple cool. TV. And if you go to um, uh, uh, www.serialkillersguidetolife.com, we've got all the um, the links and also the cinema tour that's going on. So you can kind of um, oh, cool. trailer and all of that is all there. So it's like a hub where um, people can go and, and see everything that's of uh, about the film it was made in only two weeks in it's like 30 locations and um uh yeah and it's been going great the reviews have been brilliant and uh, uh it's about a um sort of satirizing the self world of self-help so this lost in life um self-help addict unwittingly finds herself on a killing spree with her, her unhinged new life coach <laughs> so it's like the only the only the only self-help guide you'll need in 2020 <laughs> it's, yeah. Cool. So, so where did the the kind of idea come from to do this for your first feature? Yeah. Well, so I'd done a short film which um, with both uh, Casey Braben and Poppy Rowe playing the two leads in that, and that was a jet black comedy about a struggling euthanasia centre. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm getting the, the the tone of the things that you do now. <laughs> And that was that was sort of satirizing like um, the target as well as being fun and, and, and jokey. It was satirizing the kind of target driven um, society we live in. So it was they had um, the oddball owner of the euthanasia center had 10 days to raise client numbers or face closure. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was sort of simultaneously I was writing writing what would, I thought would be my first you know feature film and and it was different from that but I always had in mind I wanted to bring Poppy and Katie back together because their, their chemistry is is uh, phenomenal yeah and and then I found I, I stumbled across my eyes were sort of awakened to this this almost epidemic level of uh, proportions of self help material that's being consumed. Um, and, uh, and I also had my own sort of experience with um, psychotherapy, which was which was great. It was really, really good. But it kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the quackery, the kind of snake oil salesman of like, you know, give me money and then I'll tell you the secret of how you can be happy and, and yeah. do well in life. And so that, that came together in what I like, I sort of thought it was like a kind of Dr. Strangelove like warning, but instead of about nuclear winter, about the... Uh, the, the the over horrors of too much positive thinking so, um, uh, yeah and it's it's sort of it's like a, a very dry black comedy uh, mixed with with this sort of uh, this journey of this woman this 30 something woman who who you know should have stopped living with her mum by now and but she she meets someone who she really wants to to be like except unfortunately she's a serial killer and so she finds herself out on the road you know, on this violent trip of, of self-discovery. 
And had you been to Fright Fest before you had the, the premiere there? So I've been I've been once before as a as a viewer, I suppose, as, a, as an audience member, and then but this was the first time with anything. So my short film uh, wasn't at Fright Fest. Um, right. Going to a bunch of festivals and HBO bought it and stuff like that, which is great. Oh. After long listing and things, but um, but yeah, having, I'd heard you know about what it's like to go there as a filmmaker, and so it was uh, it was a, a remarkable uh, experience, and the you know the Fright Fest team behind it the organizer behind it and and the the audiences are just phenomenal so yeah. I, i'll never forget going on stage literally the car took me straight from the um, i live down in brighton so i got up to london from from the hospital um about one hour sleep in the in the chair or whatever oh, and and then um a car straight through to leicester square out of the car sort of straight onto the stage sold out prince charles and um and said you know i've just been literally just left the hospital from here and just everyone just massive cheer and it's all actually on the the itunes um and apple tv extras they actually arrow and um, filmed the um the intro yeah and the, and the q a that day so um for me i've got that forever now it's very pretty- cool having uh, recently been through a similarly massive life event uh, i'm amazed you could even put words together at that point <laughs> I do. I'm amazed I could, to be honest. I went so I went through that, and then um, I was also I was nominated for the Screen International Rising Star Award. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so along with a lot of press and things, I had a lot of interviews and, and things. So I, I sort of was doing all that until about nine o'clock. And I did an interview for the for the extras for for the Arrow um, release, and then I went back home. And obviously, you know, it's like you get back home when you've got a, literally a newborn, like as in 24 hours, 12 hours old. So I got back and I sort of staggered through the door thinking, oh, I can get some slow. <laughs> oh, I'm covered in black shit. <laughs> yes. And then I was, yeah, exactly. What is that? That tar. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and then I, I did it all again on the Monday when the um, ceremony and stuff for the uh, the Screen International Award was. I'm not moaning. It was amazing. Yeah. Was tired? Maybe a touch. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your baby was a couple of days old by the Monday. That's fine. I know, exactly. I expected it to get up and go to work and help me out. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I mean, like, it's about time to start contributing, really, isn't it? Should have driven you. And then, so at the moment, Poppy and I are writing the, the next script uh, and, uh, together this time. Um, and we're doing so with our little son strapped to us most of the day. So. Cool. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm similarly trying to write with a child attached to me. So, uh, are you? Yeah. As yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fine. <laughs> uh, he's very, uh, I, I would say that he's useless in the process. Uh, he's not able to provide anything in terms of, is daddy clever? Is daddy a clever man? But maybe you know, if you speak to him, does he does he dissuade you from anything? Because they could be a good bounce board. No, he uh, just stares at me impassively the whole time, and so I, I think maybe that's maybe that's all the message I need. Dad, this backstory feels a bit thin. <laughs> uh, Stan, where can people keep up with you social media wise? So um, we're on Twitter a lot. My handle's uh, at StatinCR um, and Poppy's at Poppy Row and at A Killer's Guide. Um, so that's a great place uh, to ask questions and things. We've, we, it's, it's brilliant. We've been doing some events. We were speaking um, on the Make Your Film event the other day, uh, Giles Olsen's uh, event with uh, the producer of King's Speech. And, and 
other filmmakers on that and it was wow. great because all those all the uh, attendants on there were able then to come on on social media and ask us more questions about how the film was made and, and about the story and everything like that so yeah it, that's a good place to uh, to connect with us nice nice Excellent. cool mm. stan thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us we really appreciate it that was a fun one yeah <laughs> children of the corn how was it for you uh yeah not bad at all not recommend at it all. uh yeah yeah you know what yeah you could do a lot worse yeah you could yeah, yeah. absolutely go, could check, do it a lot go check it out i meant to ask Staten actually uh, if you'd seen any of the sequels oh yeah i i haven't but i know that a fair whack of them are available from 88 films how many are there I think there's maybe four or Ooh. maybe even more, man. Jeez, there's fucking there's quite a lot. Okay, okay. Yeah. Big thank you though to Staten Cousins Row for joining us this week to talk Children of the Corn and also a serial killer's guide to life, which sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Check it out. Yeah, really nice guy with a couple of great stories to tell as well. Yeah, brilliant. I can't imagine doing that. I think I would be flayed. <laughs> we are just about done for another one, though. Yep, I know. These are flying by. I know, Fuck, eh? We've nearly done 90 of these. Yeah, I was going to say, a shouting distance of 100. Right. 100. Uh, we better start thinking about something that we're going to do for our 100th episode proper. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll be hitting that our 200th release around about the same time. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff, really. We will, of course, be back on Monday with yeah. another mini-sode. We'll be doing all the usual stuff on there. Not the Shockwaves 100, though. Disappearing in the rear view. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to think of something else. Yeah, I have a couple of ideas. What do you? Yeah, I'll give you... What do you indeed? I'll give you a pitch uh, or two uh, on Monday. Speaking of which, we will, of course, also be playing Mitch's Pitches. We will, we will. That's going nowhere. No, no. That, that, there's no shelf life on Mitch's Pitches. Well, you might disagree, but we don't. We're keeping it. <laughs> We'll be doing all the usual stuff as well. We'll be taking a look at your feedback and talking about what we've been watching and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. On the subject of feedback, if you want to get in touch with us between now and then, there are, of course, loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can, of course, email Scenes at gmail.com. But can you? You can. You wow. can. The internet presence, however, does not stop there. It does not. For we have a website, strongviolentpod.com. Should he? Yeah, and on there you can find a non-exhaustive list of places that you can listen to us mm-hmm. and the associated links to do so. Mm-hmm. You can also find links to our Public page, which has some quirky, fun little designs on there already. Mm-hmm. Some of them have got your face on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, it has kind of got my face on it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and uh, there's also a bit where you can find out live dates when they're announced. Uh, yeah, what's, what's the space on that one we say for the 18th consecutive week? Fuck. It is coming. It's We're coming. Of things, it's definitely promise. happening. Uh, we are back on Monday with Minnesota 89. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of judge. Goodbye. Bye-bye.